Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. Today is the day we're answering your questions. As the final episode in our season, I asked my culinary nutrition experts, the members of our audience who have spent the most time learning from Josh and I, what they'd like us to discuss. The questions are varied, big, and important. We'll be covering how eating meat really affects the environment, how to deal with being the odd one out in social situations due to your diet, what our morning routine looks like, where we'd like to see health and wellness go in the future, the hardest lessons we have learned in health and business, and many more bits of information and inspiration in between. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, where we offer a 14-week certification program in culinary nutrition. Joining me, as always, is Josh Catalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. As I said in the intro, this is the final episode in our first season, and we want to thank you for your support, your reviews, your sharing of the show, and all of the amazing feedback. We've had a really, really great time creating the show for you, and be sure to stay subscribed as you'll be the first to be notified when our second season is ready. This is going to be a really fun episode. Well, they've all been fun, but a big part of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is the live Q&A sessions with our students, which is one of the highlights for me of being part of the program. Yes, it's the questions from my students that keep me on my toes and really inspire me to continuously dig in and do the research. So we polled our students in our private group and picked out five questions to address on a variety of topics. So hang on to your hats or your blender tops and let's dive in. Our first question is from 2018 culinary nutrition graduate Jess Maloney from Vancouver Island. How does eating meat really affect the environment and overall health? I eat meat a few times per week because I like the taste and I've grown up on it. I always choose local, hormone-free, sustainably raised animals, but I'm growing increasingly concerned about the environment and more and more interested in plant-based nutrition. As a very physically active person, how important is protein intake really? My nutrient levels dip when I go 100% plant-based. Great question, Jess. And this is also a very confusing topic because we see a lot of stories and write-ups. And depending on what your interest is, you'll be served more stories on these topics. But we see all the time what a massive impact animal farming and animal consumption has on the environment. And to support that, we also see what an amazing environmental benefit it is to be plant-based. Right. So I think what we're actually dealing with here is a very complex topic with a lot of different parts to it. And you have written about this extensively, and you're, I think, a really good expert on the sustainability and ethics part of it. So maybe you want to start there? I will start here. And when I talk about the ethics, I'm not getting into the ethics of 
a meat-free life for the ethics of not eating animals. That's a completely different discussion. Here we're talking about predominantly personal health and the environment. And what we have to take into account, and this is something that's really hard to quantify in research and looking at things in isolation, like how much water it takes to grow a field of grain versus to raise the calorie equivalent in animals. And that's often what those comparisons are doing. But first off, so Jess lives on Vancouver Island, where they're not growing coconuts and avocados and olives and a lot of the foods that make up the core of the calorie intake of people on a plant-based diet. So we have to think about what the overall global impact is of importing the core of your calorie source. So in Canada, we grow lots and lots of vegetables. We can raise animals to make milk for their meat. Uh, we have fish in our lakes. We have chickens laying eggs. And that is the core of the calorie intake from foods we can get within 100 kilometers of where most of us live in this country. All that to say, when you're considering your own diet, in my opinion and my experience, or what you're asking about the environmental impact, is that you have to look at the big picture of your role in the ecosystem and in the environment. So living in Canada, is it actually better for the environment to be eating the core of your calories that are imported from overseas? And my feeling is that it's just not. Now, the flip side of that is that we're not also saying to eat animal-derived foods for every meal, every day, all week long, all year long. It's looking at how you have a moderate amount of your diet that comes from your local farmers and growers. And when you're having, say, a steak, you're not eating the entire thing, which we've grown accustomed to. So what's happening now is people who eat meat are eating way too much of it. And in most cases, it's from sources that are incredibly detrimental to the environment versus, like you mentioned, grass-fed or free-run or uh, whatever it's called, where they're like roaming around, eating their indigenous or natural diet to the animal. It's all of these factors that we have to take into account. So yes, feedlot farming is having a dramatic negative impact on the environment. And yes, the quantity of meat that people who eat meat are eating is detrimental to the environment and not sustainable. However, if you're having a couple of eggs a week and you're having a steak a week that lasts for two to four meals for two to four people, or you're having, you know, you're roasting a chicken on a Sunday and that feeds your family for a few days and use the bones to make a broth and you've gotten it from a local farmer within your, if not in your county, in your province, then we're looking at a different balance of variables. And if we look historically at what humans have eaten over the years, there's no diet that has been 100% completely vegan. And that's because people know that animal sources of food are readily available in their environment. And of course, the further away you go from the equator, the more dense it is in the animal products, generally speaking. And also that there's these nutrients that are much harder to get just from vegetables alone. The other thing you want to keep in mind when you look at your diet and the sustainability of it and the environment is also the overall footprint of your diet and of your lifestyle. So for example, you can eat all the vegan or plant-based foods in the world and be cooking them on Teflon. Now, Teflon 
and we're not going to get too far into this. There's a great documentary on Netflix called The Devil You Know, but the DuPont factory is poisoning humans and the waterways and the animals and causing runoff into the oceans. It's contributing to dead zones. So there is also a lot of hypocrisy in this. So if you're using cookware that's handed down from generations that lasts forever, that affects the, the footprint of your diet. If you're never using disposable dishes or not getting takeaway and takeaway container, containers, that affects the footprint of your diet. If you are composting instead of adding food to the food waste that ends up in the landfill, you're contributing to the footprint of your diet. So there's so many big picture components to consider when you're looking for a truly environmentally friendly diet. And that's why it's not as simple as being plant-based or eating animal-based products. It's looking at the big picture of your lifestyle and where you can make decisions overall in how you live that will ultimately be beneficial or have a negative impact on the planet. Now, my biggest focus clinically when I'm working with someone is what's going to be the best thing for their body. And we look at the evidence. You know, I had a client come in recently and her nutrients were just getting worse and worse since she went from eating animals to more plant-based. We look at, you know, just some basic blood work like B12, which of course you have to get from animal foods. And if someone's B12 is in the buckets, we know that they have to get it from somewhere or they're not getting it from their diet. And there's supplements, but still it's a sign that they're not getting what they need from their food. That's, that raises another point too, that if you're not getting the nutrients you need from your food and you're needing to resort to supplements, which in some cases they are, they're very, very beneficial in rebalancing and preventing disease or healing from disease. But if you could get those nutrients from food, you're also reducing your impact on the planet. You're reducing your footprint of having to buy a supplement that gets processed, that gets packaged, that gets shipped to the store and all the factors included in that, plus the, the packaging you'll then have to dispose of. For sure. Now, let's just look at one example. In animal products, there's a form of iron called heme iron. And heme iron is a lot more absorbable than the form of iron that appears in plant products called non-heme iron. It's actually, we actually absorb about 10 to 30% of the heme iron that comes from animals, but about 8 to 10% of the non-heme iron that comes from plant foods. So for some people, that's not a problem if they're eating a plant-based diet, right? Or just a plant-only diet because they can absorb those nutrients and perhaps they have really good digestion and they're living a good diet and lifestyle. But for most people, they're going to need some of those animal products in order to get that nutrient into their body. And it's the same with some other minerals like zinc it is a lot more absorbable and readily available from animal sources versus plant sources. So this is where we start to get into personalizing a little bit and figuring out what your body needs and what's going to best serve you from your diet. The final part that we want to discuss in answering Jess's question is about how to add more protein into the diet sustainably. And I sort of touched on this, but to be clear, Josh, what, what size are those steaks that we get? I'd say about 12 to 16 ounces. Right. And so that 12 to 16 ounce steak will last the three of us for two meals. So typically at dinner, we'll have each of us will have about two or three slices of it. And then we the rest of our plate will be vegetables. And we'll have that for lunch the next day or dinner the next day, or I may repurpose it, add it to a stir fry so that we're spreading that out. Whereas typically or traditionally, you might go to a restaurant and order your own 16 ounce steak that you eat as a meal. And so that's how you start to look at adding protein into the diet sustainably is that you don't actually need very much of it 
to get the benefit. It should be treated as a condiment on your plate where you have a few pieces or a few slices and the rest is filled in with whatever you want to fill it in with, whether it's a whole grain mixed with beans and lentils, maybe you want those vegetables. You might also want to look at having a few meat-free or animal-free days out of the week, what we call a meatless Monday, and really look at how you can incorporate creatively plant-based protein sources, the beans, lentils, some whole grains, some sea vegetables, nuts and seeds, and different types of plants of actual leafy greens also have some protein in them. And just make sure that on those days, you're also getting a good amount of fat into the diet. I think we've gone into that one in some great detail. Let's move on to our next question from Melissa Torrio. She is a 2016 graduate from Mississauga and was also featured in episode nine of our podcast. Melissa asks, how do you deal with being the odd one out when it comes to making healthier choices? I know it is best to lead by example, but I struggle at times for my kids who are usually the only gluten-free kids in school. When I feel like giving in, I come across a book or some research that convinces me to stay on track. And Melissa, you basically answered your own question, knowing that you need that inspiration to stay consistent and keep going. And that consistency is really, really important. One of the biggest challenges we see with people who are trying to healthify the family home is that once in a while you let things slip and kids can't really understand the rationale behind why something's okay at one time and then the next day it's no longer okay. So if you can be consistent in your own home, that's going to be one of the most powerful motivators you have to, to having consistency outside the home as well. So I think what's really important to understand first here, and it's something that I bring to the attention of my clients often, is that the world is really set up against us currently if health is what we're after. It's sad, but it's true. If you don't prepare and you go out there and you think you're going to find something to eat just off the street or, you know, without bringing any snacks, you're going to be set up for disappointment. We have to be vigilant and make pre-decisions and be prepared for those environments. And it's something that Megan and I have made a habit over the years. So with your question, Melissa, about how to not be the odd one out or not how to isolate yourself or your kids, if your kids are feeling like they are left out, you have to educate your kids. And I know you do this, Melissa, because I know you told me that you had them listen to our gluten-free episode. We can't underestimate the ability of our children to actually understand things when we explain them to them. And and also remember, if you listen to our gluten-free podcast, you know that there are a lot more incidences of gluten sensitivity, but not everyone will have an extreme reaction. So unless you have a gluten sensitivity, there may also not be any harm in them having it very, very once in a while. And if they are gluten sensitive, they have it once in a while, they may actually feel how it makes them feel and be inspired on their own to not want to feel that anymore and not want to have it anymore. Right. And on the point that Megan made with education, that's one of the tools that I use often with my clients. We can explain, you know, the why behind it. If we understand the why, the how is much easier. Explain to them where that food comes from, why it's considered processed, what it can do in the body why it can harm you, and what they're going to benefit by avoiding that food. Yes. And the the judgment piece is also a big one where you are not expecting anyone else to 
do what you're doing and your kids can't expect anyone else to do what they're doing and allowing your children to have the confidence when they are asked why they're not eating something that they feel confident being able to explain it if they're old enough to do so. And again, that consistency at home, helping you stay the course is going to help build their confidence in the decisions that are made, whether it's you packing their lunch or them at a birthday party or whatever circumstance you find yourself in where the values and the nutritional philosophy that you hold in your own home is being challenged. Now, I think one thing that's quite difficult to deal with that we've dealt with many times over the years is that when you go to a party, for example, and you choose not to eat something, people wonder why. And sometimes they ask you. And when you give your reason, sometimes they feel guilty that they're consuming it. And then they feel that you're judging them, even though you might not be. It's all their own stuff. It's all their own stuff. And this is not easy. You know, you've asked a question here and there really isn't an easy answer and an easy way out. You got to stick to your guns. And the longer you do it and the more you do it, the better you get at it and the less you care of what other people think. And then you're setting yourself up for more success in the future. Ultimately, all we can do is control what we can control. And a big part of that is what goes on in the house, what we pack for lunch, and really just have the confidence in our family members to do what is right for them. And they will make decisions that we may not choose. And part of, I think, parenting is being okay with that. It can be tough and it can feel isolating. Ultimately, we each have to decide, given our own circumstances, weighing that risk and reward. And I do believe that the more you know as a parent or as someone on the health path yourself, the more you know, the more inspired you are to continue on, despite, as Josh said, it being more difficult when you get out in the world. Now, one more point I'd just like to add before we move on to the next question is something that Megan and I have noticed over the years is that you kind of change your social decisions as well, where you're going to go, who you're going to go with, who you're going to spend time with, because eating is such a social experience. So that also helps as well. I find that one of the biggest sabotages for my clients when they're trying to carry out their protocol is when the people that are closest to them are not on board with what they're doing. And one more thing I'd like to add is the idea that we've talked about that it is challenging, that it is hard. Harder is being sick. And ultimately, you need to take that into account that, yes, it can be hard for your kids going to a birthday party. It's significantly harder feeding themselves or yourself something that you know does not agree with your genetic makeup, your personal health circumstance. It's significantly harder to be sick and dealing with a health problem than to eliminate a food. Let's take a pause here so I can introduce you to an outstanding 2018 culinary nutrition expert, Lori Moore. Lori came into our community last year and immediately became a shining star and amazing support for her fellow classmates. Her longtime career as a teacher came shining through. She is now teaching her own workshops and classes and having great success. We're thrilled to have Lori as one of our esteemed Academy of Culinary Nutrition certified instructors, and she's even become a part of our own core team as a 2019 program coach. Here's more from Lori. 
I am Lori Moore, and I'm a 2018 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. I first discovered this program while I was studying to be a holistic nutrition consultant, and I knew that the CNE program would be a perfect complement to holistic nutrition. In fact, I would recommend this program to anyone who has studied holistic nutrition and isn't sure what to do next and how to apply the knowledge you've gained. The CNE program is so practical with recipe assignments each week that help to build confidence in the kitchen and the skills to adapt and create recipes for yourself and for others, whether it's your family or your clients. Megan has designed an amazing program and her infectious energy each week leaves you always wanting more, exactly what you want in an instructor. The CNE program enabled me to fulfill a lifelong passion of supporting others in their journey to better health and discovering what nourishes them. Thanks to the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program, I have the applied knowledge to be able to create healthy recipes and meal plans and to educate others in fun culinary nutrition classes. You can learn more about Lori at lorimore.ca or head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and select this episode. If you join us in September, she just might be your program coach. I love the opportunity to answer questions from our students as we're doing on today's show. A big part of our Culinary Nutrition Expert program is the live check-ins we have together. There's a weekly Q&A. As our program is 100% online, you're able to join from anywhere and these Q&As are no exception. You have the freedom to join us live online if it works with your schedule, or of course, you're welcome to tune in to the recordings later. It's up to you to create your own schedule during the program. We are closing registration for the 2019 session in a few short weeks. So if you're considering joining us for September, well, today might be the day. Head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more and secure your spot. Now let's get back to our conversation or rather our question and answer session where Josh and I are going to dig in on a few more of your amazing questions. Here we go. Our next question comes from another local Ontarian here in Stouffville, Ontario, uh, Christine Peacock, who was a 2015 graduate. Christine is asking for a sneak peek into the day in the life of us from when we wake up, morning routines, family, work, personal exercise, cooking, bedtime, and the like. You're in luck because we had a camera film us for the entire day. And just kidding. We did not do that. That would be <laughs> Josh's worst nightmare. Yes, that I would not do well with that. And I think it would influence what we're doing. So we can share with you our morning routine sort of based on where we're at today. It's summertime. We have a two-year-old. It sort of goes like this. So Finley will wake us up around 6.30 in the morning and I will breastfeed him while Josh either meditates or heads off to the gym. When he comes home and I'll get breakfast started when Josh comes home, uh, he takes over breakfast with Finley and I do my 30-minute workout and I do my 30-minute workout about five times a week. I'm hooked on it. And then we'll sort of finish breakfast together. Depending on the time, if there is time, we'll all go for a walk before we have to head off to work. Uh, what time do we sort of start work typically? We usually get to work between 9.30 and 10. Yeah, we start work around. I usually get there. I'm usually there a little bit later than Josh because he has clients right at 10. We do have a, a nanny for our son who takes care of him during the day while we're at work. So we head off to work and work, 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 <laughs> very focused, come home. Uh, I get home around five. One of us is home by five to get dinner going. And then we make dinner. We have dinner together around six o'clock. 
give Finley a bath, put him to sleep at 7.30, and then we have time for ourselves together. Right. And sometimes we're doing some projects. Sometimes we're watching something on Netflix. Sometimes we're reading a book. In the nicer weather, we tend to sit on the front porch and really enjoy that. So, you know, it's kind of boring. It's so <laughs> nice and boring. But you know what? The, the important part about health and achieving it and maintaining it is consistency. And it's not about just doing that workout once or that meditation once or whatever. It's about figuring out how all these routines that we know are healthy work in your lifestyle. These routines are constantly evolving for Megan and I based on our life situation. They were very different before we had a kid. They were very different right after Finley was born. And right now we're in a new routine based on our life situation. Yeah. We also uh, take Fridays off or work from home Fridays so we can have lunch together. And then after Finley's afternoon nap, we usually go somewhere, whether it's to visit our own parents or just go out on the town. And then on the weekends, we typically hit up a farmer's market and we'll just do things we can do in our neighborhood. Go to the park, splash pad. Uh, that's basically all we do. Right. We are really trying to avoid getting in the car as much as we can. We get all our groceries within walking distance of the local shops. And uh, we live a very delightfully simple, low-key, cost-effective life. Yeah. Now, one extra tip for people who do want to incorporate certain health practices into their life I recommend that you figure out a, a time of the day where you can do it at the same time and that it works for you. So if you want to take up meditation, don't you know say, oh, I want to do about 10 minutes of meditation a day. Be more definite and say, right when I wake up every single day, I'm going to do 10 minutes. Or I work out right when I get home from work or first thing in the morning, you know, when you set that time aside and you commit to it, like an appointment, like almost like a business appointment with yourself, you're going to be much more prone to stick to it. Candace Cullen is a 2015 graduate from Denver, Colorado. And Candace asks, I would love to know where you would like to see the health and wellness industry go in the future. Big question. I think because we veered so far away from our indigenous diets that we thrive on, we're starting to come back and people are becoming more educated as to what's healthy, whole foods, lots of plants, etc. So that's more of the macro movement that I think we're moving closer and closer to. But on a micro level, on an individual level, I think we're moving more towards personalized medicine, personalized health, personalized nutrition, really making it specific to you, understanding that there's 7 billion people on this planet and there's 7 billion different diets and ways of living and ways we need to move the body and, and mental exercises we need to do, etc. I think one of the big things that I really would love to see is a wider acceptance of these different diets for different people and also the movement away from so many gimmicks. I don't know if this can ever happen, but like all like we get so hung up on all these little details that just don't have that big long-term impact and instead just sort of keep us distracted from the reality of the big four things that will impact or maybe it's five things that will impact our health and well-being which is our our diet, our relationships, our activity level, our mental emotional state and I don't know what the fifth was, hydration. Yeah, There's and those are the fundamentals, Sleep, Megan. sleep, yeah. that was it. Right, and those are all the fundamentals, right? The things that nothing else works unless those are working. Yes. Right? I think it's really easy to find all the little things to keep us distracted from 
those big things. So I would love to see sort of a trend away from so much conflicting information, just the acceptance that there are different diets for different people. And first and foremost, we really need to get those big lifestyle things under control. Now, back on your question where we see this moving, and we've already seen this, is technology, which is quite interesting. You know, we always are so hateful on technology saying how bad, how bad, how bad it is, you know, people on their phones and their computers and everything. But these devices have brought some amazing technologies to us that are actually helping people live a healthier life. We've got online yoga on demand. We've got online workout classes on demand. We've got a whole bunch of different meditation apps. So I think also we're getting these new technologies that are helpful for health. Oh, also personal devices that monitor your health, like Fitbits and and heart rate monitors and, you know, uh, sleep monitors that you can wear as a ring or whatever. Like there's just so many cool things out there where you can actually take a bigger part and a bigger role in your own health. I might, everyone, what, look at your clock. This is a momentous historical event, but I think I'm disagreeing with you. Oh, really? Yeah, because... I think all those apps and all that technology is just overcomplicating the fact that like to meditate, you just need to sit down and breathe. To exercise, you need to get out and walk. To sleep, you need to lie down and do nothing. And I feel like we're like getting so overwhelmed in these details where people are like, oh my God, I only had like two sessions of REM sleep last night. No wonder I'm so tired. And and I, I think that it actually is like for most people, just way too much data that maybe isn't beneficial. That's just causing more stress around the fundamental things that are supposed to be bringing us health. Like anything, Megan, I think there's a happy middle ground. (laughs) (laughs) You know me, I'm always the diplomatic one. Always. (laughs) So, you know, technology obviously can get out of hand. And of course, we want to go back to the roots. But I guess there's a happy balance because, you know, in truth, Megan and I have both used certain technologies to our advantage. Yeah. And it's that happy middle place where we need to use them responsibly. I would hate to see someone, I just pictured someone like who got like really stressed, like, okay, I need to meditate. Everyone's using meditation apps and they download like eight different meditation apps. And then they like put one on like, no, 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 I don't like this one. And then they like go to the other one and they're like, no, 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 this one's not right. And then it's actually self-perpetuating the very problem it was meant to resolve. Absolutely. And that happens for sure. That happens. So you you just want to remember the big picture and, and keep it simple. The other really oh, this is such a big, 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 big hope I have is that healthy food becomes accessible for everyone. Our processed food industry is so heavily subsidized by our governments that it makes it seem like processed food is substantially cheaper, which it is. It is. It's just being paid for, not by us, but in other ways. So I would love to see a way that the health industry no longer carries the stigma of being for like the elite, that people can access good, fresh, homegrown food and know what to do with it, that this should be taught in schools from a young age and that the value is there and learning how to grow your own food, whether it's on a balcony or in a small pot on your on your yard or your backyard, that we all have that knowledge and the ability to do that. And that's 
a big part of the project that I I do with with Thrive in helping fund these community gardens in other parts of the world so that people have these sustainable communities. Why doesn't every community have a community garden that everyone works on, everyone volunteers with, and everyone gets food from? Like these are seemingly simple projects that are not happening in these food desert communities. And ultimately, that is my hope. Now, my final additional piece to this discussion on where our health and wellness industry should go in the future is accessibility for not just regular blood work and testing for personalized health outcomes, but also like functional lab testing for prevention and early warning signs. And a lot of the tools that functional medicine practitioners are using right now, they can be expensive. They could be hard to access. There could be a lack of know-how on how to use them. But we can see things years before they become symptoms and then eventually diagnoses. We just watched a really interesting documentary. It was based on the book Bad Blood. I can't remember the name of the documentary right now. It's escaping my mind. It's based on the book called Bad Blood about a woman in Silicon Valley. Oh, I think the movie is called Out for Blood. Something in Silicon Valley. You'll find it. But it was about this woman who had this idea that with like a small pinprick of blood, she could run tests on, run 200 different blood tests. And we watched this documentary riveted and you'd remember seeing her TED talk. And it turned out that it was all a little bit of a scam. It's unclear. Sorry if that's a spoiler alert. It was unclear of, of where things went awry or if it was never going to work from the start. But it's the idea of it is so inspiring, which is why she had so much investment in it, that what if we got to a place where with technology, we could do a pinprick of blood from our finger, a test you could do at home, drop off at the local pharmacy or you know, self-run clinic or whatever, it was affordable that you could get this blood work done and see the imbalances before their symptoms presented, before there's the presence of any sign of disease and that there is the knowledge available to then know what to do to correct that imbalance or to offset any potential, you know, things that show up in your genetics. Now, to summarize our thoughts on this question, we think that we should look at the big picture, establish that the fundamentals are so important, and that's where we always have to go back to for health. We think this is going more towards personalized solutions through testing and diet and the like. And also having more people get more access to good food. Yes. I want to flip that on its head and say, we need everyone getting access to good food. That's my primary, my primary hope. Our final question is from Mary Margaret LeClaire. She's a 2016 graduate from Belleville. And her question for us is, what's been the hardest lesson you've had to learn in your health and nutrition business journey? Well, my biggest lesson is that it is never stagnant. So if we look at the health field, it is constantly evolving, despite the fact that the core of what keeps us healthy is never changing and it's never going to change. But being in the health business, it's having to continuously stay on top of the current trends, being able to respond to those questions or react as needed to what's changing or how people's perception is changing. And when it comes to business, 
running a business is ridiculously hard. That too is never stagnant. I think there's sort of a a massive misconception that you can create these small businesses and they can be almost like set it and forget it. You create a product or an online course and you put it out in the market and it'll just sell, 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 sell. At least for me, almost 12 years in, that has never been the case. It's been constant work to to keep things alive, to stay relevant, to stay up on the current trends and information and continue responding to the needs, the questions, the wants of my community. One of the key lessons that I've learned is a little bit more clinically targeted. Working with hundreds of people over you know the years that I've been doing this, I've realized that there's a very important translation from the books, the studies, the seminars, the webinars, the things you learn in theory to the practice and what actually happens with people in real life. Now, when I first started practicing, it was quite fun because you took all this information that you learned in school, you applied it to a human, and then there was results. They changed. It was yeah. usually positive. But you know, as you deal with more and more people, not everyone react the same way. A lot of information out there in the health industry make you think that this is the next supplement or this is the next diet or this is the next whatever. We've covered a lot of this in our podcast. But when you are working with people one-on-one, you realize that everyone's going to respond completely different. And the art of functional nutrition and functional medicine is being able to know what to do based on how that person is responding. This is a big focus on my functional nutrition certification program where I teach my students how they can have that conversation, which is exactly what it's like. You know, you say something, the person answers back with, you know, how they respond to your recommendations, and then you make changes based on that. And it's constant evolution. One of the final things I think we've both learned is that Josh and I are very vocal in terms of sharing information. When we learn something, we want everyone to know it, and we will either write about it, post about it do a class about it, whatever it might be. And not everyone is going to agree with you. And some people get mighty vocal. Some people get mighty mean. And so part of it is just having confidence, uh, learning to, to continue with that confidence in why you're sharing what you're sharing, the mission behind the work you have, and feeling really solid about our why. Why, over a decade later, are we doing this podcast? Why do we continue writing blog posts and newsletters and offering courses and training people and certifying people and encouraging others to get out there and share that and mentoring new people in the field? And it's because we are so driven in what we're doing. And though I don't know if it's the hardest lesson we've had to learn, it's a big lesson in what we've had to learn that over the years, we've earned the honor of getting to do the work that we get to do. And I feel it's a privilege and a responsibility to be able to continue sharing it. Absolutely, Megan. I think we're both passionate about constant and never-ending growth. And in that, we like to learn a lot and we like to share it. Like I know when I go to a conference, I am so excited to take the information I learned and share it with my students or do a new webinar or takes a piece and apply it to a client that I'm currently working with. I mean, that's just where my excitement comes from. If I just learned it all and stored it in my brain, it'd be useless. And it wouldn't give me the fulfillment that I'm after as a educator and clinician, etc. Or I'd have to become a much better listener when you start a, a sentence <laughs> with, you know, what's crazy, Megan, and then comes this long, complicated scientific explanation of some function of a mushroom in the body. <laughs> 
<laughs> so with that, we hope that you were able to benefit from some of the stuff that was in our brain that we translated into this podcast and that uh, you're applying it in your life. I think that this just about wraps up our first season. There were several more questions, but we just didn't have the time to get to them. And perhaps they will pop up on future episodes of the Today is the Day podcast. Again, we want to thank you so much for tuning in. There is no expiry on these episodes, so please come back and have a second listen in a few months. You may find that you missed something the first time around and maybe are ready to apply something new to your own health practice. We also have some more resources to support your learning over on culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Finally, I want to invite you to join the ranks of the culinary nutrition experts we mentioned in this episode. The 14-week certification program is life transforming. There are no guarantees in life except this one. Not one of the 1,800 people who have come through the culinary nutrition expert program ever regret learning what they've learned, and you won't either. There is no greater sense of empowerment than knowing how to properly nourish yourself, your family, and your clients. We get started in September, so the clock is ticking. Please head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. It's been a blast sharing this information with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Today, Today is the day. day.